Welcome to The Author Journey, the midlife pursuit of passion and purpose, a limited edition podcast hosted by me, Jay Thorne. Chapter 2. Adulting. Putting on the golden handcuffs. In episode 1, we identified as nonconformist independent types. Maybe that's why we loved it when Pee Wee Herman uttered this classic line in his big adventure movie. I'm a loner, Dottie. A rebel. But that was then. This is now. Nonconformist status aside, you probably found yourself doing some pretty conventional things, such as getting married or buying a house. You may have adopted pets or had kids. Adopted kids or had... Well, you get the point. I want to acknowledge that there's no shame in being practical, reasonable, responsible, and making your parents proud. You earn money. You bought a living room set with the additional sofa. You bought a new car with a five-year warranty. So why are you adrift? Weren't those handcuffs golden? Why doesn't it feel right? Where is the satisfaction in all of this? What's the point? It's never too late to make a change. At any given moment, you can look back and see when your core identity was shining through, regardless of your situation, because that light never goes out entirely. It's always been there, even when you're not looking for it. You mourn lost opportunities. You think back to that 25-year-old version of yourself and all of your potential. Just because you're not that future version of yourself doesn't mean you're not the future version of yourself you need to be. You haven't wasted any time because all of your experiences brought you to today, to this very moment. With deliberate intention, you see that your call to adventure has been waiting for you. It's ready to go when you are. Nothing is the end until the end. Colonel Sanders didn't start franchising Kentucky Fried Chicken until he was 65. Starting the business with his $105 monthly social security check. You're not a chicken, and you're not waiting until age 65 to get started. Let's go. I felt obligated to honor the sacrifices my parents made for me to go to college. So upon graduation, I immediately started sending resumes to hundreds of school districts. In 1994, I followed the woman who would become my wife to New Jersey. I transferred to a Sam Goody record store in East Brunswick, where I had to buy ramen noodles from the dollar store because minimum wage wasn't enough to afford groceries at ShopRite. In late summer of 1994, on the 137th resume I mailed, I landed an intern position at a small private school, a salary position for a whopping $19,500. I taught at that school in New Jersey, then at a school in Nashville, then at a school in Cleveland until I left the profession in 2017 at age 46. I actively refused my call to adventure for almost 25 years, but it didn't go completely silent. In 1995, I was teaching fifth graders fractions by having them play the quarter note bass line on my guitar to a Bush song, Maybe I'll Fly to Los Angeles. It wasn't until I was hired to become the assistant director of entrepreneurial education at a private school in Cleveland 
that I heard the call to adventure again. And the timing couldn't have been worse. I was the primary wage earner for the family. Both of my kids were enrolled in a private school. We had a mortgage and two car payments. But the call to adventure became louder when Steve Blank invited our team to present educator workshops in his living room on his California coastal estate where our lectures competed with barking seals on the shore. Blank created the customer development method that launched the lean startup movement. As Wikipedia states, his lean launchpad class taught as the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps or i has become the standard for commercialization for all federal research and has trained 1,900 teams and launched 1,000 plus startups. His hacking for defense class has been adopted by the U.S. Department of Defense. I co-designed and presented these two entrepreneurship workshops at Blank's home in Pescadero, California. We sold them out and in the process gained national and international recognition covered by publications such as Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, the Huffington Post, and EdSurge. I was at the top of my profession in both salary and recognition, and yet it wasn't enough. I felt guilty for even having that thought. How could I be so ungrateful for my lot in life when I'd been so fortunate? I know you've asked yourself that same question. I was you not that long ago. I know what you're feeling and why. This clip is from Men in Black Shirts, episode 11, first published on April 3rd, 2023. In this episode, I explain how I met my wife to TW and Zach. Keeping your ego in check is not something you think about doing, but it's essential because it forces you to have empathy and makes you a better teacher. My wife is not a romantic, but she has a great sense of humor. You'll discover that you can have wildly different experiences and that your recollection of those experiences changes over time. You'll also better understand early 90s grunge fashion. Uh, yeah, how about you, Jay? What's your... Uh... So I was, um, I was in college uh, at the, when, I, when I met Joy. I was working at Camelot Music, and um, there's some very bizarre coincidences that we find out later, like... Our grand, our grandmothers were friends, childhood friends, oh, in wow. the same like a street apart, and we didn't know this like for a long time. She was, uh, she ran uh, the desk at the student union where all the pool tables were, and I played pool like three or four times a week, and so I'm sure we talked, you know, and, and didn't realize it. But anyways, um, she was, she was a new hire at Camelot, and I was out with my buddy Jeff, and we were getting ready to go drinking, and, and this was like ninety one or 92 i was full-on grunge man like i was like the, one of the dudes in single grunge you know? pool shark yeah <laughs> i had like <laughs> the flannel and the ripped jeans and the hair and the bandanas yeah. and i was you know trying to be eddie vetter or whatever and so grandma was taking you home basically yeah pretty much right <laughs> i was full-on grunge in my early 20s and uh so jeff and i were like as you did then we're like we need some music to because we're gonna go drinking and smoking and so we need some music to listen to and so we were gonna go in and buy some cds and I remember walking in and I hadn't met her yet. I heard that they hired a new girl and I looked up and she was at the, at the register and dude, I stunning. Like I, 
you're still stunning, Joy. But like, she was 22, long dark hair. She had like um, piercing green eyes, red lipstick. She was all dressed in black, like a tight black skirt. And I was just like, I couldn't breathe. And and uh, so Jeff and I, like, I just like didn't even look at her. I didn't introduce myself. And and we went and we picked out a few CDs, and we checked out. And I didn't even talk to her. We got in the car, and I was like, Jeff, I'm gonna marry that girl. And he's like she is so far out of your league, dude. You're high. There's no way. Um, and, and so, uh, so a few years late, like, so we didn't get together uh, right away. Like I was seeing someone else and, but like we were in that, in that space in your early twenties where everyone's hanging out together. They're working together. You're kind of sleeping together. There's that sort of that, that dynamic in your early twenties when you have a group of friends like that. So eventually a few years later we, we, we get together and, um, and then, you know, we, we uh, got married and stuff. And this was years later. I figured, we're at a party or at a dinner or something. And someone like another couple was like, oh, tell us the story of how you met. Like everyone wants to hear that. It's kind of like why I asked you guys. So I told, I told that story and, uh, and I was like, I knew right away I was going to marry her. There was no, no question about it. She was way out of my league, but I just knew it. And like, I remember like the woman being like, oh, that's so romantic. She turns to Joy and she's like, so what did you think when you first saw him? <laughs> Joy was like, I thought he worked at a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yep, that's my wife. That's Joy for you. This clip is from Teaching Transformations, episode 16. First published on July 5th, 2021. I started teaching transformations with my friend and former colleague, Dr. Ryan Woolley. We worked together for years at an independent school in Cleveland, leading and training teachers in educational technology. Ryan and I became fast friends and remain so, even though we haven't worked together since 2017. This short-lived podcast, although packed with insights, was my first attempt at addressing the retirement crisis. I've embedded many of the principles from teaching transformations into the profitable sage. In this episode, Ryan and I discuss the stories we're writing, living, and revising. Dr. Woolley asked me to set the stage to tell my story. We talk about the curse of the golden handcuffs and how it's far easier to claim victim than to do something about it. Ryan asks me what made me what I am. I share aspects of my journey from rebellious teenager to compliant professional with a hint of my current rebellious professional persona. You'll discover that even though you think you're a finished product, you're always a work in progress. Therefore, failure is always an option. Necessary road bumps on the journey. What's the worst that could happen to you? Well, I want to play on this this uh, theme of stories because uh, we all have them. We're all living stories and, and writing our life stories. And um, so, uh, you know, I want to I want to delve into some questions here. Like, what what are the stories we're living? Uh, what are pivotal moments from our life life stories? How much of our stories are we writing and then enacting versus being written by others? Um, how much can we revise our stories? Um, so, uh, so to start, tell me your story. <laughs> <laughs> my story. Uh, so my story right now is I 
walked away from the golden handcuffs to take control of my time in my life. That's that's my story right now. All right. Well, can you take us back to the beginning? <laughs> Go way back. How far back? <laughs> All the well, way back. I I, I will. Uh, I, I'm not being cheeky, but like I, I think there's also um, there, there's sort of a context to this because uh, I've been thinking about this episode, what we're going to talk about, and one of the things that I realized is that I think people who claim victimhood are not going to like this episode. <laughs> if you like to blame other people and other circumstances for your problems, you should probably stop listening right now. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is, um, this is, this is a, it's a challenge to see, to see how you manifest things in life. I mean, that's what we're talking about with stories, right? Like you, you sort of create your own story and then you enact it and 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 you can choose like you can you your story can be the boss is a jerk and um if only that boss wasn't there i would be a superstar and then you can live that story out or you can say the boss is a jerk and therefore i'm going to find a new boss or become my own boss and you can live that story out so it, there's an element of choice here and and there i think there are people who get really entrenched in their lives and in their problems who don't see it that way. And, and, and I'm not talking about things that happen, bad things that happen to people, unexpected things. Like, I don't mean that. I'm talking about sort of the, the reality that you create it is something you create for better or worse. Like, and, um, and I think it's not something, it's something I have to be reminded of and it's something I fall victim to quite often um and so like even you know even my story i you know i i am where i am now but if you had asked me that question 10 years ago my story would have been completely different right so like going back to your question like what what's the beginning of the story i would turn it around on you and say well which story yeah well so what i'm trying to get at is i first of all i agree with you but secondly it's um even that point of view was informed by your life story some of it chosen some of it not chosen you know so that's what i wanted to get into is like what made you who you are and what what how much of that is fixed how much of it is malleable how much of that you know can be rewritten and uh, you know since since you had to jump to the punchline, I mean, the end of the story with all this, uh, I mean, I'll just say the reason that I think this is worth digging into is because um, I think that second act, uh, you know, uh, stages of lives are opportunities to, to rewrite our stories, you know, so, um, but I think that happens best if we know who we are and how we got there. Um, so that that was kind of my reason for wanting to get into this topic. Um, and, you know, not that I'm qualified in any way to, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not a therapist. I'm not looking to be uh, a therapist or anything. But I I um, I do think even your point of view, you know, has to I bet you there are strands of it that trace all the way back to when you were really young. I mean, yeah, you know, I. I don't know. Um, 
it, it it's an interesting question like it it because it gets to like how much how much did you come into the world with and how much did you develop once you arrived um like i i think about my childhood i was incredibly compliant up until the time i was a teenager i mean i I did everything my parents told me to do. Uh, you know, I was extremely polite and respectful, quiet. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying this is a good thing. Like, I, you know, I, I was a really, really good kid up until the time I was a teenager. And I don't know, like, I, I so, so I can't trade, I can't say like, well, I've always been a rebel. Like I've always had this streak in me that I was going to damn well do what I please. And like, no, that was not the case. Like I was, I was raised to be, you know, the, the old adage of, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And like, that was, that was how I was raised. And, it, and even when I started to rebel as a teenager, because my parents had such a strict idea of what children were supposed to do or say or be, that those battles were even more intense. And I kind of dug my heels in even further, only, only to spite them and not for sort of any moral high ground. So I, I really don't know. I don't know where, I don't know where it started. I mean, I, and I, you know, I, I rebelled as a teenager. Um, I almost dropped out of college um, for, uh, for many of the same reasons. I'm like, I, I don't, like I'm doing this because my parents want me to. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Um, and my dad, you know, he, he kind of talked me into staying and I did. And then what did I do? Like I turned around and I immediately entered a profession full of very compliant people. <laughs> like, I mean, let's be honest. Educators are not rabble rousers. Like we can't be like, we, you know, we have to be nurturing and empathetic. We're not, we're not the ones who are supposed to be causing the problems. And so you know, and, and, and I spent decades as a very compliant, I mean, somewhat eccentric and minor, you know, uh, minor pain in the butt for, for my administrators, but not, not a, not a troublemaker, you know, um, and I, and I stayed in a conservative uh, career as a compliant employee. So, yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to have either friends or, or small communities of like-minded people in those moments. Um, because I, you know, I think about my own, you know, making the decision to, to leave my job and become a full-time writer and publisher. I didn't do that completely on my own. I mean, I did, but like, I, I felt like, I felt like it was a risk I was willing to take because I was in a community of other people who were doing the same thing. You know, like I, I changed my story from, well, this is impossible for me. There's, there's no way I can do this to saying, well, no, other people around me are like me are doing this, so why can't I? Um, and and that's that's the power to change that story, um, to believe it or not believe it. And it doesn't mean that there's no risk, and it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed it's, that risk is going to pay off. Um, but it it does it does allow you to change the story. And I think once you once you change the story, uh, well, I think we're constantly enacting the stories we tell. So as soon as you change one, then you're immediately starting to take actions that are different than, than what they were before. I, I don't think I fully realized that until several years after I left the classroom and was, it was no longer teaching. Because I think for years, what held me back was, well, what would I do if I fail? Like, what if I, what if I create this story and it, it's wrong? Like, and for some reason, I, I overlooked the idea that I could just write a new story. 
Like literally, like I, like I look back now and I know like from where you are and, and if, if you're currently in a full-time job or if you're currently teaching, walking away probably feels next to impossible. Like it, it just, like, I know I, I, I felt, I, I felt those feelings. And when I think what I failed to realize was I was not going to end up under a bridge down by the river. Like I just wasn't like, I, maybe that's some sort of false sense of myself or maybe it's my own ego that won't, wouldn't let me think that. But like, I've never thought, I've never thought like, well, if I walk away from teaching, then we're going to be homeless. You know, like what I, what I, what I realize now is that I could rewrite that story. So I could say, okay, if it, you know, next year the auth, my author business tanks, I'll just go get a, another teaching job or I'll go apply for like, and, and it now to me, it just doesn't even phase me. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just go make money some other way. Like if it doesn't work, but at, at the, at the inflection point of that decision, it seems overwhelming. It feels like you're making a decision between your life and everything you care about and you're putting it all on the line and you're risking your family's well-being. And I think for most of us, that's not true. Like, I think the worst case scenario is if you, you know, you try something and it, and it doesn't work, you can just try something else or you can go back to what you were doing. Like, I, I think that that's what was lost on me. And I, I think having a few years out now, I can look back and see like, yeah, I was never really in the jeopardy I thought I was. This clip is from Doing School Better, Season 1, Episode 7, first published on March 14th, 2016. Doris Corda and I started and developed the aforementioned entrepreneurship program that eventually gained international recognition and caught the eye of Steve Blank. Doris is an educational visionary and a brilliant educator. The core of her work evolved into the Corda Institute for Teaching, a, quote, 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to transform school. Corda Institute works with hundreds of educators globally to change the way teachers teach and students learn in urban and rural public districts, career tech programs, and schools of all types. In this conversation, we explore what it means to be an outsider in your profession and why your superiors will tolerate you even when they don't understand you. I own my restless spirit and how I thrive in environments of change. We discuss why learning by doing is the best kind of learning and how, as an artist, musician, and writer, I develop the skill to convey a message in as few words as possible. You'll discover pockets within your job or profession where you can express your core identity, where you'll start to hear the call to adventure again. You came in with me to start to be my co-instructor in this class, and you had been teaching for several years, and I'd like you to talk about uh, what it was like for you to start teaching this. And What was it like? That's quite a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. um, I think like you, I've pretty much been an outsider in my profession. I've always done things differently. And sometimes it's been embraced, but most of the time it's sort of been frowned upon. Yeah. Uh, and and um, 
but I've always had the best interests of kids at heart, and I think that's why I've been tolerated by so many administrators over the years, because <laughs> I, I, I do have, I, that is my, my ultimate goal. So I think um, in my personal life and as an educator, I'm a risk taker, and uh, I'm not afraid to try things and fail. Um, and I'm also a bit of a restless spirit, and so I, I move through these phases. I've taught middle school, I've been a director of technology, I've been an instructional technologist, and now I'm a, a part of this entrepreneurial program. Um, and so I really thrive in environments where things change. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when the opportunity came along for me to, to kind of join this program, for many reasons I jumped at it. And one of those was because it seemed so new and so different and so frightening that I couldn't turn it down. <laughs> That's, uh, that, boy, does that ever ring true. Having known, knowing you as well as I do, everything you said is true in spades. What do you think are the most important elements of this? Uh, the most important element is learning by doing. Mm -hmm. That's really at, at the core of who I am. It's what I've discovered over 20 years as a classroom teacher. And more importantly, it's also what I've discovered in my own life. And so I've had sort of this parallel existence as an artist, a musician, and a writer. And a very successful <laughs> one, uh, by the way, with your pseudonym and your very successful author. Thanks, yeah. yeah. Well, but, I mean, but I've, that's only because that's what I've, I did that stuff. Um, I didn't take classes on being a musician or I didn't go to writing workshops and call myself a writer, and those, those things are good and they help prepare you, but they don't make you what you are. Yeah. An artist creates art, a musician makes music, a writer writes, and that's how you learn how to do it. You can take classes all day long, you can read all kind of books on something, but until you roll up your sleeves and you get in and you do it, you're not it. Uh, so I think that's really at the core of this, and, and it's what we do with our students. We don't spend weeks preparing them for a business challenge or introducing them to a company or even an industry. Um, they don't even know where they're going on the morning we take them there. Uh, and I think that's what's so exciting is that it's not, and I think that's what's really appealing to the kids. It's so different and, and it's so engaging that we're just saying we trust you and we're going to help you, but here you go, let's do this, let's not prep for it. I always am so amazed by the way you, in a very concise way, the way you're able to get students to learn about effective presenting, which is also writing. So if you could talk a little bit about sort of the the trajectory of these students from the very first time they do a presentation to the end? Yeah, I, um, I, I was going to share a quote, but then I can't remember it, and that would not really be effective. Uh, my general approach, and this is for myself as well, and I think it's the, the journey that you're speaking of for the kids, is this ability to let go of all the stuff they think they have to cram in and and get it to its core, and I think that's really that's really the essence of true writing. True, really good writing is getting your message across 
in as few words as possible. Mm. And, and I that think shows that's up in journey. everything you do, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, you know, it's, it's natural for kids to come in and kind of want to throw everything against the wall to prove to you, the teacher, and, and so sort of backing them off that and saying that's really not as important as getting your message across succinctly. Right, That's right, what matters. Right. This clip is from the Horror Writers Podcast, Episode 4, first published on July 7th, 2014. My first foray into podcasting, the idea for the Horror Writers Podcast came out of a conversation I had with my friend Jim Kukrell, who at the time was founder of Author Marketing Club and an influencer in the indie publishing space. Jim encouraged me to become the go-to guy for horror writers. I owe much love and respect to Kukrell. If it weren't for his encouragement and support, I never would have started podcasting all those years ago. One of my earliest podcast episodes, I recorded this on an Amtrak train from somewhere in the Nevada desert, returning home from that first entrepreneurship workshop at Steve Blank's house. Although the seven things I learned about writing from Amtrak aired on a writing podcast, now I clearly see how those lessons apply to everything. For example, being observant is critical, whether you're a writer, an air traffic controller, or a professional poker player because observant people get more opportunities. They notice them when others don't. You'll discover how changing your environment helps you gain clarity, as I discovered on my first cross-country train trip in 2014. Even when you're not hearing the call to adventure, you're still on the right track. This podcast is being recorded live from the middle of the desert in Nevada aboard an Amtrak train, the California Zephyr. I am in transit from coming back from California to Ohio and so I thought I had to take this opportunity to do something really unique which is record a live podcast on a train. So there are walking podcasts, there are driving podcasts, I don't know this would be a railed podcast, I guess. The topic today is what I learned about writing from riding on Amtrak. If you pay attention, there are a lot of great things that you can pick up when you travel that will make you a better writer. And although I don't spend a lot of time on the act of writing on the podcast, it's a lot more of the marketing side, I, I did want to take this opportunity to share with you some of those revelations and ideas that I had. So you may hear some announcements come on the PA system, you might hear a train whistle, and you might hear some track noise, but hopefully that won't detract too much from the podcast. So the first thing that I have learned from this trip is that it's really important to keep your pace slow and steady, just like a train. We sometimes come to a crawl sometimes we speed up a little bit but for the most part the speed is steady and I think that's a great uh, I can never remember if they're metaphors or similes but I think it's a great way of looking at uh, how you should be writing I, th I think it's important to write every single day and there's uh, there are differing opinions on word count and how much and how long and and when uh, and 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 what you write but I think the important thing is to exercise that muscle. So in the same way that you would want to be exercising your 
regular muscles. If you're a runner, you're going to be running as, uh, on a daily basis. Or if you're a musician, you want to practice your instrument on a daily basis. I think writing is the same thing. The more that you practice it, the more often that you practice it, the better it becomes. So that's definitely the first lesson is uh, slow and steady, write every single day. The second one that I discovered came from purchasing a sleeper car. This is a 49-hour trip without delays to go from San Francisco to Chicago and then another six or seven from Chicago on to Cleveland. And what I realized is that when I shut the door to the sleeper car and pulled the curtain, it's me and the scenery and that's it. And if I turn that cell phone off, I am removing all distractions. There's no Wi-Fi on the train and I, I like that. Uh, I think you can create that kind of solitude. So if you are not taking the California Zephyr from Chicago to San Francisco, you can still create that solitude. Some writers have a dedicated space, a dedicated time. I've never been a fan of writing in the coffee shop. I know there are people that do it. Uh, I'm sure there are people who are very successful with it, but for me, I needed to I need to remove my the distractions and and being on a train and being in a sleeping car with the door shut and no internet is a great way to write. So that would be number two is remove the distractions. The third thing I learned from about writing from writing on Amtrak is that the scenery is incredible and if you're observant you will always find something to write about. Uh, I'm not sure if writer's block is a real thing or not. I know I've heard people talking about it. Uh, being stuck for ideas is not typically something that I have to deal with. I, I have a lot of issues <laughs> as a writer that I want to try and, and, and fix, but writer's block is not typically one of them. And I think if you struggle with uh, generating ideas or if you struggle with trying to figure out what to write, just being observant, looking out the window and just paying attention to what's happening and stories will emerge. Clearly being on a train provides an unending supply of visual stimulus. Uh, but if you can't be on a train, if you're just observant and you watch what happens, uh, you will find a lot of inspiration. That leads directly into number four, uh, which is listen more and talk less. So one of the things that you figure out when you're on a train is you are, for better or worse, stuck with a lot of the people on the train for a very long time. And I find it to be a much more interesting experience if I simply listen to other people's stories. The, the urge to, to talk is there for all of us, but I've, I've found that if I listen more and talk less, I become more inspired, I get story ideas, uh, and I just meet some really interesting people and everyone's got a everyone's got a great story but if you're talking you're probably not hearing it so that way number four number five lesson I learned about writing from writing on Amtrak is that it's really important to appreciate what you have I think a lot of times as writers we like to focus on what we don't have whether that be sales or readers or social media platforms or time and being on a train in, in some way has reminded me that it's important to appreciate what you have. So for example, in a sleeper car, you get hot meals, a shower, and a bed. Uh, those are three things that 
a lot of people in this world don't get on a daily basis and I, I'm I have it on a train so it, it, sometimes it's important to just really take stock and appreciate what you have the resources that you have and the skills that you have that's number five number six what I learned about riding from riding on Amtrak sometimes the train has to switch tracks we were delayed about four hours coming out from Chicago to San Francisco because of freight trains and there were deer we hit a deer and it uh, threw some bones underneath the train I hope you're not eating dinner while you're listening to this and, and there are obstacles you have to go around so sometimes you have to switch tracks sometimes you have to make slight detours however your destination your goal should always remain the same so we're, we're still trying to get to California we're still trying to get to Chicago and on to Cleveland and we may switch tracks and we may, may go around obstacles but the important thing is that the goal is still there and and that's where we went want to end up so switching tracks is important there's a little whistle for you I don't know if you heard that in the background or not I am uh, staring out into the desert right now as it's moving past my window I kind of wish you could be here with me uh, number seven this has to do with staying focused so uh, the BIC method is something that's very popular but in chair it's hard to write if you're not sitting in a chair and writing whether that be on a computer or longhand or whatever it happens to be and on, being on a train you got to stay on the tracks and writing is the same way you have to stay focused you have to stay disciplined now there's a lot of talk and to a certain degree I believe it a lot of talk that says there's no such thing as an overnight sensation that you have to work really hard for a long time to get what you want and I guess I guess that's true in a certain way in another way I kind of see it differently I if you're doing what you really love it's not work so uh, I would just keep that in mind uh, there is a such thing as an overnight success if you don't consider what you're doing work because you love it so much in that case you've been playing the whole time and uh, before you find success but for the uh, for the train ride we need to stay focused we need to stay on track as the train certainly doesn't go through the sands of desert or the salt flats of Utah which is what's coming up next by the way very exciting so I think that's seven seven things I learned about riding from riding on Amtrak uh, I hope you enjoyed this somewhat different podcast I don't know if it's a first but I'm gonna go ahead and say it is and hope and if it's not maybe someone will correct me but uh, first podcast recorded live on a train I don't regret the decades I spent as an educator I'm proud of the family I've raised with my wife, and those experiences as a teacher prepared me for my journey into entrepreneurship. I didn't accept the call to adventure until 2017, but I didn't entirely refuse it either. I can now see how I was practicing for the next chapter of my story. You haven't been refusing the call to adventure. You've been listening to it longer and better than you realize. And as you'll see, it's never too late to fully embrace the call to adventure. Where in your life did you see evidence of your call to adventure? What jobs or responsibilities did you hold that gently pushed you toward your adventure? In the next chapter of the story, we'll investigate the complex and mysterious task of decision-making, especially as we age and get more risk-averse. 
and we'll see how you cross the threshold into a new world to leave the old one. Mentorship by Brian Clark, Jared Morris, and Trudy Roth. Podcast concept by Jared Morris. Written, narrated, and produced by Jay Thorne. Editing by Miranda Weingartner and Trudy Roth. Audio editing and production by Jay Thorne. Twisted and Retro Future, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 at creativecommons.org.